We are not victims. We are going to be the shapers of our own history and our own destiny. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantelle Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We have a very special guest on the show today. We have been spoiling you lot recently, I'm not going to lie. We're going to be spoiling you even more today because we have got the amazing Black Power activist, Layla Hassan Howe, on the show. Layla, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. feels really surreal to be speaking with you, Layla. You're a big inspiration for us and for so many of our listeners. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. No, good. I'm looking forward to it. Where we kind of start off for our listeners would be to give you a bit of background about yourself. Mm-hmm. So I was born in 1948. Um, my father was a Zanzibari from, of course, from Zanzibar, now Tanzania. My mother was a white working class Englishwoman. She was from the East End of London. My father was a butcher and probably had the first halal butcher shop in East London way back in 1947. He, what would be called, stalked, stalked my mother. She worked in a chemist shop. They were a poor working class family. And my dad says uh, he just kept going into the shop until she gave in and they had a date and they, she liked him and he liked her. In course, at that time, 47, 46, 47, very few black people at all in England, although there were some uh, in East London, Somali seamen, I think she said there were some Somalis. They had a relationship. She took him home to meet her, her mother, father, sister. Her sister said, Lily, what have you done? And after speaking to her father, my grandfather, he said, no, I can see that you're a genuinely nice person. And I'm quite happy for you to have a relationship with my daughter. That was very rare at that time. My mother says she was spat at in the street when she walked with him. Um, She was insulted. When I was born, they gave her dirty bed linen and she was crying. And my dad visited her and said, what's wrong? And she said, everybody's been given clean shawls for their babies. And they've given me this dirty one, which has been scorched. And he said, don't worry, and went out and bought a new one. So she, I mean, there's, I always think there's not enough credit given for those brave women at that time who did have relationships with black men. Their relationship didn't last. My father became a devout Muslim. He wasn't always devout, I have to say. But when he did, his main concern was, as he told me when he took me to Africa, was that he did not want me to grow up as an English person. And that was very much to do with the fact that he was a devout Muslim and that he wanted me to grow up in, in the Muslim religion. And so he took me across Africa, across Europe and across Africa, Um, mainly we stayed with friends who my father had looked after when they had come to England to study. So the family I ended up with, Dr. Sood, which was a very wealthy Arab family, he'd come to England to study dentistry. And him and his wife had stayed with my mum and dad. My, you know, had looked after them. My mother said any East African at that time, they were given my dad's address. And so they would knock on the door and he would look after them, care for them and help them get accommodation, feed them, as she said, regularly. Um, and so he, we were able to stay as we travelled through Egypt, the Sudan, Uganda, Kenya, finally getting to Zanzibar. We were able to stay with friends of his who he'd looked after in East Africa. But at that time, I think I was 10. 
nine or ten. So all of this to me was like a completely different world from what I'd known in England. Um, but when we got to Zanzibar, he had a discussion with the Sood family. They had three daughters, Miss Reen, Masha and Nafila, my four daughters and a son. And they, in discussion with my dad, said, let, let her come and live with us. Part of a way of repaying him for his kindness. But as I was a young girl as well, they thought that they would do that. So I went to live with Dr. Sood and his family, a very wealthy family. And at that time, Zanzibar was run by the British. So the school I went to, Seda Matuka School, the teachers were English. So my, the fact that I couldn't speak Swahili wasn't a barrier because they taught in English. Uh, and this is one of the things of colonialism, that the population, if they wanted further education, had to learn English. But I had to learn Swahili to be part of the society, which I did. Arabic for the purposes of being growing up Islamic education. And, um, and then go to school and speak English. So that was the kind of world in which I lived. There's so much there, right? My, my experience comes to, comes to this part of the heart history through via books, right? So mm -hmm. my understanding of growing up in the colonial context, the colonial mind, or even the post-colonial mind, right, mm -hmm. is all kind of book-centred or research-led. So mm -hmm. to speak to someone firsthand who's telling me they've kind of moved around the empire effectively, because I'm trying mm -hmm. to do my maths as you're walking along. So most of these places don't gain, gain independence until the 60s. So you're yeah. moving around the empire. And I'm like, has that had an impact on what shaped your thinking going forward? Or No, most definitely, because what it meant, although there was the division between Arabs and Africans that then led to the revolution, at that stage, the whole society was involved with the mainland, Kenya, Tanzania, and we wanted the British out of Africa. And we were part of the late independence movement, so Zanzibar got its independence in 64. At that time, all the talk was about when the British were going to leave East Africa, um, when were the British going to leave, when were we going to have self-rule, home rule, as they called it, when were mm -hmm. we going to be able to govern ourselves. And that was felt throughout the society by the Indian population, the Arab population and the African population. So at that time, there was an anti-colonial unity. But the British did what the British always do, is they handed over power to the Arab minority. And that's why there was a revolution against the Arab minority, uh, with the help of people from the mainland, from Tanganyika, who threw the Arabs out, became ruled by, Af by the African population, who were the majority. Coming back to England, I, I had that strong anti-colonial sense, that kind of pan-African sense already by the time that. To witness all that and to go through all that as a sort of a child of empire growing up witnessing mm -hmm. all those adults around you, mm -hmm. like, did you have a sense of anti-imperialism as you were growing up? Or was it that imperiality or colonialism or the British running things was something that was sort of normalised for you growing up? No, because when I went to Zanzibar, I'm at the height of the anti-colonial movement. So even when we travelled through Africa, I mean, we went to, through Egypt when Nasser was in power. <laughs> and the anti-colonial movement in Egypt was huge. I mean, the sentiment of foreign imperial colonial rulers coming out of Africa was huge. So I'm fortunate. I've not witnessed the other when they the feeling of subjugation. Mine's always been that feeling of we want the British out. When I arrived in Zanzibar, that was the debate. Everywhere that was the debate. We used to listen to BBC Radio. We used to listen to, I think Kennedy was around at that time, and the, the, the beginnings of the black movement in, in um, the United States, the very, very early things. But everybody was very clear that the issue was that the British had to get out of Africa. So I grew up in that. I never, even though we went to school and we were taught by the British, 
everybody knew that this this era was coming to an end. Everybody knew that that this was the time. These people were moving. These people were going. Um, but the, the kind of the way the island was governed with the legislature and who was in charge, it was British people. It was white people who were, were running the island. But I was definitely, the population at that time was very heavily throughout Africa against the British being there. So I never had any hesitation about knowing which side I was on. You come through this anti-colonial movement and now you, you, mm. you end up back, back in the manor, back in East London. Boom. Lovely, yeah. right? Yeah. You've experienced racism yourself on an interpersonal level. You've grown up in the crucible of anti-colonial thinking, of fighting back resistance. And most importantly, pan-Africanism, mm-hmm. which links you to struggles all around the world, links you to the diaspora in a way in a way that you, you're, saying you're willing to fight back. Mm-hmm. You tell us a little bit more of that feeling. Yeah, so I don't think it's fighting back. What it was was not accepting. Yeah. So, yeah. so the thing is, that, like, my mother had remarried an Englishman who was just out and out racist. He was a person who worked on the docks in Sugar in Tate and Love. Mm-hmm. My mother's family, a lot of them were dockers, white working class. His dockers have a certain place in history for their militancy, but they're yeah. militant, but they're also racist. So what it, what it is for me is that everything that's going on around me, I don't accept. I wouldn't say I was fighting it. I just didn't accept it. So whenever there was discussions about immigration, as there were all the time. So I'm back in 64. This is the time, mm-hmm. of, you know, from the 60s, we're getting mass immigration from India, Pakistan and the Caribbean and a little bit from Africa but not much so this is so the debate in the society is about immigrants and immigration and every time it's being talked about I'm just not accepting what everybody else is saying about how they're here to destroy the country undermine the country they're lazy they just want you know to do I mean it was the contradiction was on the one hand they were lazy but on the other hand they'd come to take the jobs all the contradictory things that are said about immigration were going on at the time. So my thing was constantly arguing with my stepfather. My mother wasn't so bad. Sometimes she would shift to me, sometimes him, you know, she was a mum. It was a very unhappy existence because all around me, there was a, a feeling about black people in this country, um, third world people in this country, because I'd grown up in a society that had Asians as well in Zanzibar, a feeling about them as being inferior, second class, not wanted, which I just could not accept and did not believe. So for me, within me, there was always this kind of unhappiness about um, not accepting. I could have had a choice. There were some black girls and boys in East London who'd grown up with white parents on one side and black parents on the other, who became what I call kind of Cockney geezers, who absorbed that East London culture, who became accommodating of the racism and just tried to show that they were as as little black as they could possibly be. And that I found was a difference between me and them because I could never do that. And I knew that was my father. I knew that was Africa. I knew that was the pride that I had in being an Africa of African descent, which meant that I couldn't accommodate or be one of that type of person. But there were black people in East London and they had it hard. And if you had some white blood in you, you tend to veer towards the white side of your family to try and show that you were okay. And that was something I couldn't I couldn't do. But it's quite tough for me as well because it was just complete non-acceptance of the of what was being said about black people around me. Layla, I think for for me, like listening to that part of your story when you came back and you had this stepfather and you were immersed both intimately and structurally with white people that were rejecting and so so racist, like that 
that part of your story speaks to me so much. I know it speaks to a lot of people, um, particularly if you are black and have white family that sort of behave in this way. And I think that that rejection of that, that side of the family, like almost doesn't get spoken about enough. Like there are so many of us that actively resist that. And I'd say that your story, like it speaks to things that have continued into now and to very much the contemporary like it's not really gone away that stuff and that's why your story is so inspiring to so many as well because mm. actually that like, you can resist but we have to always remember that, that resistance is painful mm-hmm. like what you spoke about like how emotional and how difficult that was for you like mm-hmm. you had this British state you've got Enoch Powell like a um, huge hostile environments being created by the state and then you've got it interpersonally mm-hmm. within your own home space within your home area and at school must have been so, so difficult my kind of redemption by reading so this is where the reading comes in and knowing that there's an alternative so by now we've got james baldwin who i just devoured james baldwin and you just start to read and you start to just follow the news of other countries which is still with South Africa, there's still the liberation movements against white power structures. So you just have an alternative kind of narrative for your own life that tells you, you know, you are separate, but you get a comfort in it because it's going on. Other people are talking about it, writing about it, struggles are going on. So you do get a comfort in that. So you're not isolated in that sense. Personally, you are in terms of who you can talk to about it. But if you've kind of got a bit of a mind of your own, you've got a wealth of literature, reading the papers, to know that there is another world going on, which you, which you then identify with and attach yourself to. So that's what you believe in. Is it through the reading that you start engaging with the kind of activism that's going in London? How does that happen? So the activism for me is the Black Panthers in America. Okay. So by now I've left home. I mean, I must say, um, although I'm not going to talk too much about my husband, Darkus, I didn't get <clears> on with my mother for years. And it was Darkus who said to me, Leela, your mother is a white working class woman. And you're, she's not your enemy. But of course, you know how daughters are with their mums. But from time to time, she really was. But, <laughs> but he's the one who more or less talked to me about a lot about class and what was going on. And so I began to get a, a, that kind of rejection I'd had of, I don't want anything to do with them and that, you know, they're useless, they're hopeless, they're pathetic, they're racist. I began to see another side. So I must say, it's never one thing or the other. There's always a movement and a discussion that goes on about that. But in terms of of me, I had left home by then and I'd married and also that hadn't worked out. I'd married a man from Sierra Leone that hadn't worked out. He was what I would call typically Fanon's description of black skin, white mask. Absolutely an African man who wanted to make it in the society. He was also a a semi-professional footballer. So I used to go to football matches and witness the most horrendous racism at this guy. Even when he scored a goal, the banana skins, I mean just constant you'd sit there and it was just non-stop but I went to work at the Institute of Race Relations again I'm reading now I'm reading more than than, than Baldwin I'm reading African history I'm understanding more at the Institute of Race Relations it was a colonial institution that was aimed at doing research on the colonies in terms of how better they could exploit the colonies by understanding the indigenous populations and in Britain as too, too they did the first major research book on immigrants in Britain called Colour and Citizenship in British Society. And that looked at immigrants in terms of where they worked, lived and how they lived from the point of view of the ruling class, not from the point of view of the immigrants themselves. 
but there was a librarian there called Sivanandan. And he, because of his own history, and because he was a brilliant librarian, he was good at his, his craft, absolutely. He began to get in all the journals and all the articles from Black America and from the Third World. So Black Scholar, which was around then, that was a very, very fundamental reading for a lot of us. All the liberation journals. But the turning point for me, I can remember it as if, to, if it was today, under reading about the Panthers, knowing about the Panthers. And the BBC used to do a lot about the Panthers in America, particularly because of their militancy. And the turning point for me was Huey Newton on a bridge in Oakland, I think, with a gun mm -hmm. and turning up to the police. And I know that that for me is like a light bulb moment when I realised, no, it's changed now. It isn't about discussion or debate. People are taking militant action and that's something I want to be part of. So that's why I joined the Black Unity and Freedom Party. It was wanting to be part of that radical movement that was actually standing up for black rights in a militant way that had not been done before, either in Britain or America. So that to me, so it was the Panthers really, which was the trigger for me to join the Black Power movement. You know what, man? I want to I want to throw my berry, boy, and put my put my glove on. That's so sick. It's so sick. <laughs> I'm always interested in the kind of the interpersonals and what what's kind of the discussions and what's mm. happening. Like whenever I read about race today, whenever I read about your life, what you were all doing, I always think about the discussions that you had, like mm -hmm. the the conversations, like how you were caring for each other, organizing, like how multi-directional the activism was like it wasn't just about when you did things like the national black day of action it was there were so many other layers to it and i'm so, mm -hmm. I'm so interested in that stuff the, that, the national black day of action like mm -hmm. that that particular event we take something that and that's reacting to what's what's going on structurally in britain especially with the police the sus mm -hmm. laws and so set the scene where you are primed to kind of say that kind of militancy are you primed to that because it's it's something that's in the air Oh, no, definitely. So I tell everybody, I, we grew up at a time of huge social movements. The mm. movement against the Vietnam War in America, it was major for mm. us and in relation to all the black GIs who were saying that they weren't prepared to fight, Muhammad Ali's refusal to fight. So we've got the Vietnam War, we've got Paris 1968, which doesn't get talked about, huge student rebellions. We've got the women's movement in America and the black women's movement and the conflict between the black and white women's movement and all that debate that was coming out of there. So I grew up in a period where change was in the air and the change wasn't just politics. It was culturally, how you dress socially. I mean, I had a massive Afro. I would wear African clothes. So there was a thing of, of introducing colour, vibrancy, militancy. So I grew up at that time, um, which I think is very fortunate. So these things weren't in isolation. There were huge movements for change going on in the world anyway. I mean, the trial of the Chicago 7, which is now on Netflix, although it's not the true picture, it gives you an idea of how wide in society the desire for change and to not be part of, agree with what was going on in the status quo was. And that was black people and white people and men and women who were saying, no, this society's got to change, we don't want it. So having grown up in that area, era and generally in the by now the immigrant community in britain has gone into another phase so the first immigrants who came over and were doing the jobs in transport in health in the foundries in 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 Fords, in dagenham and all of that their children are growing up so i belong to that generation of that first generation who probably came over at five six seven years old but go through the british school system and they're the ones who carry this militancy of saying we're not going to do what our parents did we're not going into those jobs 
we're not going to be treated the way you treated our parents. And they also draw strength from the international movement, mainly the Panthers in America, but other movements in America. So the whole era in which I grew up was one of change and militancy. Uh, so Race Today is part of that. Is part of that movement that's going on. Just to roll back, because T went to the 80s, but I want to just yeah. sort of roll back yeah. to the 70s yeah. and just, can we talk about a little bit about the formation of Race Today and what is Race Today? We're all assuming that all the listeners know what Race Today is. But Okay, Race Today was made up of mainly people who'd been in the black power organisations of the late 60s and early 70s in, in Britain. So Race Today was the formation of people from the Panthers from the Black Unity and Freedom Party, from something called the Croydon-Brixton Collective. And Farouk and, and Mala had also come through the Indian Workers Association. So it was a, it was a group of people who, had, who were activists before race today. But with the demise of the Black Power movement for various reasons, we realised that, that something else was needed. Basically, it was Dark as Hell who, taking over the editorship of Race Today, because Race Today existed as the Journal of the Institute of Race Relations. So race existed anyway, but they decided um, after the mangrove trial and with the rise of black militancy in England that it needed a black editor. And because of the people involved, Siva, John LaRose, Wilfred Wood, they wanted a radical black editor. And it was between Darkus Howe and Ron Phillips, someone called Hal Austin. And when they approached Darkus, Darkus said, I'll only be interviewed if you can assure me I'm going to get the job. He wasn't prepared to go through any kind of selection process. They interviewed him, but they gave him the job. And he had been very closely allied, I mean, for all of his life, Darkus, to C.L.R. James. And C.L.R. James, in, in his activism in the States in the 30s and 40s, had put forward this idea of a, an organisation based around a journal. A small organisation, not, um, not trying to in, in, recruit people, a small organisation of activists around a journal. And that's the idea that Darkus brought to race today. So he built a collective around a journal, and that is probably why it survived for the many years that it did, because it wasn't a collective that lasted three or four years. Race Today existed for, I think, 14 to 16 years, a group of people around a journal. But because it was we were activists and we were political, we came up with our own political ideology, and that was done through zillions and zillions of discussions that would go on for hours, about who the black community was in England, what was its militancy, what were the issues it faced, if we were activists, what we should be involved in, what we would and we wouldn't do. Um, we, these were intense discussions ongoing all the time. And around a journal as well, it's around what you're publishing, what you won't publish, who you're going to invite to do an article and why, what's the moment in British society that requires this kind of article, this is going on, we need someone to talk about this. We didn't just have people we agreed with contribute to the article, but if we didn't agree with them, we then invited someone to put the counter-argument. So it was a journalism of debate politics, but the big thing Race Today did, which has made it unique, I think, is its influence on culture. So because Linton Crazy Johnson was a member of the Race Today Collective, we had something called Creation for Liberation. So we did a lot around, we did our own art exhibitions, our own poetry tours, um, we had something called Basement Sessions, where we would invite the leading artists of the day to talk about their art and then have an audience who would, would agree or not, not agree with them. So it was very much something that we wanted the black community to engage in debate and discussion because we felt that would further the development of the community as well. And of course, all the ideas we, we had 
were completely opposed to what the status quo was telling us, to the ideas that were pre- prevalent in society at that time. More my dad is particularly from your generation. So right. I guess what would I be, second, third generation? I couldn't really understand him. I couldn't really understand his militancy and, and how he's coming at me because this is, wasn't the world I was growing up in. This is right. like 1980s yeah. Britain. It's, it's different. He'd be telling me stuff and I couldn't get it. And I didn't get it for a long time. Interesting to me, when you're talking about this, the, the, the kind of the heady mixture of what's going on in the world in the 60s and 70s yeah. internationally and and how that and how that links everyone together so the diaspora it is a diaspora still but it, it's linked up in a way that it almost seems not it's not absent today because it's, i guess it's in a different form mm-hmm. but it's that idea that we're all, all in it together is something that that uh, that's something that's sorely lacking well not lacking but like something i can't see today and yeah. it's just quite interesting to hear someone talk about it in such a vivid yeah, so way today when i tell people walter rodney would be sitting in the office opposite darkness having a chat about what was going on in guyana morris bishop from grenada would come we get people from brazil who would just knock the door <laughs> and say, we know this radical journal can we come and talk people from south africa we had an asian girl i remember who came over and she said can i be can i do what you would now call an internship can i work for free in your offices just so I can see how you produce the journal and the way you operate. And that was how it was. You know, people would just walk in and say, can we... Uh, I mean, we had an advantage in that CLR James was also by then living at base today. And CLR yeah. had visitors from everywhere um, who would, would want to come over. I mean, up until he was able to see people. So we had lots of people knocking the door saying, you know, can we speak to you? Can we speak to CLR? And it was just constant discussion. At, at the same time, as I told everybody, we're bringing out a journal and all of us are activists. We've all got our own campaigns that we're involved in. Campaigns against the police, the big campaign we had in East London for better housing for the Bengali community. We've mm. got links with Bradford, Leeds, Birmingham, Manchester. So we're travelling up and down. The case of Jules Lindo, the guy who was framed for armed robbery by the police, actually sent to jail and then released when it was found out the police was forging statements in the Ripper case. So we would be on minibuses going to Bradford and Leeds. We'd be going to, I'd be speaking in Manchester. I'd be going up to Birmingham. So there was, I mean, we were in, when I think now, because of how people think about life now, people probably would say, you know, where was the time for yourself? But for us at that time, the politics was the personal and we absolutely, it married, it was the two and we just did it. We just did it. It's mad. When you said Morris Bishop, my parents are from Grenada. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Morris, Morris, you know, we did a lot on Grenada. It was part of the campaign mm. when, you know, Morris was killed. And Morris okay. Morris came to see CLR, came to see Darkers. We'd just be sitting there and chatting about what was going on. And we would say, well, what do you need from us? What can we do to support, you know, organise meetings where he would speak? So, yeah, that was that's the kind of era in which in which we live. One of the things that I often think about when reading about your life and so many of you that were organising is there was so much so much activism, so much struggle. But there's also a lot of pain and a lot of death, a lot of surveillance, a lot of mm-hmm. state oppression. Like mm-hmm. that must have been so difficult. It not must have been. We didn't care. When you're in a movement, it doesn't take on the weight it takes on when you're not in a movement. Okay. No, not at all. We knew the police were there. Darkers had special branch officers that followed him, particularly in Newcastle. They even followed him to to cricket. He went up and he spoke to them and said, why are you following me to cricket? And he said, we've been told to follow you everywhere, Darkers. So he started to talk to them. Um, When you're in a movement, those things are insignificant. 
You don't sit and think on the downside. You, you're forward. You're moving forward. You know, movement, when you're moving forward, that's what you're doing. And you, those things are, okay, that's tough. That one's been sent to jail. Okay, we need a campaign to get that person out of jail. George Lindo, I mean, he was an ordinary working class man. And they went to the betting shop. He was putting on a bet in the bookies. And they arrested him and framed him for armed robbery. And his mother and his wife and his, he had young children. I mean, that was horrific. And then to be found guilty and sent to Armley Prison. But all the time, we're on the move. We're doing something about it. We're not victims. I mean, this is the big race today statement from victim to protagonist. We are not victims. We are going to be the shapers of our own history and our own destiny. All this is going on around us, but we're not buying into any of it. Well, no, now that's a different, you know, people talk about pain and all of that kind of stuff. We didn't do that then. We didn't. We knew it was there, but we were on the move. Um, I mean, uh, uh, it's awful to say this, but we felt we were invincible because we were getting so many victories, particularly in court cases. We were taking on the police and we were winning. So when that happens to you, you know, you become a different kind of person. Thank you so much for correcting me. It's so important. But having those wins, like mm-hmm. we, me and Tisa talk about this a lot, like we've got to celebrate the wins, we've got to celebrate the wins. But like, yeah. I sometimes feel like, because particularly over the last 20 to 30 years in my life, lifetime, that it's been quite difficult to find the wins. Mm-hmm. Love you to maybe sort of talk about a little bit is sort of 1981 onwards. Sure. So you have to remember the Black Power movement also was kind of declined because the state intervened in those organisations. They yeah. gave lots of people jobs. Um, you know, the, the kind of the Black Power movement is is also something which hopefully is going to be explored more. But one of the big things was the state intervention into Black Power and what it did to undermine that movement, which I don't think much research has been written about. And also because, you know, movements ebb and flow, you know, so we're riding high. I mean, the Black Panthers, as we know in America, were decimated by the police and the FBI and what they did to them. Here it was different. It was the British way. It was co-option. So we'd been in a movement and we'd seen how the state could intervene to defuse that movement and what the state could do. But there were wins in Black Power, the biggest, of course, being the Mangrove Trial. And which, of course, everybody's going to know about in, in a couple of weeks when it's on television. So there were wins previously, um, but we were in an era, particularly in our struggles against the police, where we had huge wins. 81, for various reasons, is kind of looked on because of the black people's day of action and the big mobilisation around that for New Cross. And the way in which it was done um, is, is really quite significant for in the history of black Britain. But then what happened as well with the uprisings in Brixton and all over the country um, as well, when really that was, you know, people just said enough is enough with what's going on with the police in our communities. And so since 81, I don't think you can say it was the state that actually, although the state had a hand in it, the population changed. So for us being the children of immigrants and striving and fighting for what we thought was more equal rights and justice, the reality was that black people had gone into a, a much more socially upwardly mobile place as well. So the communities changed. So it's not just the factorism and the repression and how hard that was. The community itself is changing. And because there is that social mobility within the black community, what the black community wants for itself isn't what we wanted for ourselves. Many of them felt there was the possibilities of going to uni. I mean, everybody was going to uni. When I grew up, there were, weren't any black students at universities. The, the opportunities for university opened up, the opportunities after black sections in the Labour Party, people began to believe more in the Labour Party as a vehicle to take them forward. 
people began to believe that if they could get positions in local councils, there was a big drive for black councillors in Britain. So the population has changed in terms of what it wants for itself, as much as the repressive forces against it. And I think that because of race today and our approach is always looking at the community, not, not what's being done to you, but what you do. We always saw how the community itself had changed shape, which is one of the reasons why Race Today stopped publishing, because all of the demands that we had were being taken off in another direction. And, that, and many in the population wanted them to go in that direction, which was into mainstream society. One of the things that comes across about those wins is about people power. Mm-hmm. That people can people can make a change, right? And yeah, it, yeah. but these things are always going. But I think nowadays it's harder to see. You have to be looking. But there, but at the time you're talking about, it seems to be quite obvious. But as we move into the eighties, like you said, people are mainstreaming. We're becoming successful. Michael Jackson, all these people there, they're mainstream faces. So people power seems to be. At that time, I, and I guess it almost seems like a, like a bygone age. It seems like something that's not appropriate for this. What's going on at that time? The stuff that you spoke about prior, and then stuff now. Mm. There's a kind of a rupture. That's that's how I kind of think of it. Where people are mainstreaming, and so the demands are so they're so different. I don't know how you articulate them. The, the big thing for us was the fact that that people saw the Labour Party as a vehicle for their for change. When I grew up, nobody believed that the Labour Party or the union movement or any left-wing organisation was going to make a change in black lives. Never. But of course, as the population develops in Britain and people go into the Labour Party and into more mainstream organisations, there's a belief that these institutions, if we get black people in them, there will be change. And that that was the shift. Um, Of course, what the Black Lives Matter movement has shown now and what the American movement has shown is that black faces in high places do not make for fundamental change for the black community. And that's what the the difference is now, that that's what those movements have shown. But there's been a big drive both here and in the United States for black people to enter mainstream institutions, get your child into university, you know, come out of university and then they'll be able to be able to achieve this, that and the other. But of course, because of the class structure and the stratification in British society and in all societies, that's only ever going to be open to a few. And that's what the Black Lives Matter movement has shown, that yes, a few have, and they're they're supposed to be our role models, aren't they? They're supposed to be the ones. I mean, I must just say on a personal thing, one of the things I hate is these ex-gang members who then come on television and say, I was in a gang, um, but I'm going to go back now and I'm going to show, you know, this, that and the other. You know, the reason gangs exist are because of economic factors and the alternative economy of drugs. And that isn't going to change anytime soon. So to have these individuals, and they always try to make it an individual choice when it isn't. And it's what we were talking about earlier. It's about this individualism that really took root under Thatcherism, as you say, when, you know, although she claims she never said it, there's no such thing as society, that if you strive hard enough, you can make it in society. That was a big drive of the 80s and the 90s that happened. Mm -hmm. And of course, what's happened now, sort of two decades on, is people saying that's failed as well. At the time, Bailey, when you saw people moving more towards the Labour Party mm-hmm. as a vehicle for change and as you saw more people emb- embracing mm-hmm. the trade union, like on a personal level and thinking about the sort of late conversations you guys would have like all the mm-hmm. time, what did you think about that? So we, we, we did an article called Whose Interest Will the Movement Serve? And what we said in Whose Interest Will the Movement Serve is that our movement had served a professional black middle class to develop. 
that although there had been significant changes um, for us on the ground, the real people who were benefiting from all our grassroots struggles was the development of a more professional black middle class. And the thing about the unions, and it's interesting because I spoke at a Labour Party meeting not too long ago, and what interested me is that no one points out that the leadership of the union is predominantly middle class people. Apart from McCluskey and a few others, there are very few working class people leading the unions, bring that working class reality. And it's the same with the Labour Party. It's the vehicle of the professional classes. And if you know that, and if you still stay true to what you believe and what I believe, once you know that, you know what they will and won't do, so you don't get disappointed. The problem <laughs> is many people not knowing what they will and won't do and get huge disappointment when these institutions fail to deliver what they really think they should, if they were to stand true to their original promise of what the Labour Party stood for, of what the union stood for. If they were to stand true to that original promise, then things would be different. But they've become a vehicle for the middle classes, for the professional middle classes. There are jobs in unions. I work, still work in the NHS two days a week. And you hear a lot of cases of, of young black people who go to disciplinaries and who have issues with racism at the workplace. I can tell you without a doubt that the advice given by the unions is always to compromise, always to make a deal. They never want to support that black person to take that issue right to where it should go. And it will be a difficult journey for that person to do it. But the union's job should be to support them. They always look for what is the deal that can be made. Do you know? And that, that's the issue. Whereas in race today, we would have taken that right to where it needed to go, even if it meant upsetting the chief executive of the organisations. But unions don't do that. They're looking, they come to you and they say, yeah, there's evidence that, you know, she was racist. Yeah, yeah, that you're right there. You weren't treated right there. But let's work out what is it you want and what do you think you can get? It's always what you think you can get rather than what do you think you want and what you should actually achieve. So if you know that's what the unions are going to do, you're not going to be disappointed. But that black person who's gone to the union believing that they're going to listen to them and take their issue forward, there's huge disappointment. And that's what you're seeing, I think, with the Black Lives Matter movement is a, a disappointment and disaffection with the structures which were supposed to support and take us forward that they really don't. And of course, when I grew up, there was not a, a, an established professional class as there is now. Um, the African community here, you know, the African professionalism, that, that generation that came over a bit later, who've gone into more middle class roles, more professional roles in law and education, in government even, well, we see that with who Boris is appointed. That wasn't there when we were around. So you, you can't really compare like for like, if you see what I mean. You've really got to kind of follow the, the trajectory of where these things have gone. And then it's for the generation now, for your generation, to say, well, we know this and this is what we're going to do about it. But the arguments of yesterday that we had, I don't think apply to today. That's why when you talked about advice, I was a bit hesitant. You're in a different, completely different ballgame to what we were, I'm telling you. In this current BLM moment, is it a return to radicalism or is it a renaissance of radicalism? Looking back and drawing inspiration from what's gone on, reinvigorate or or create new structures to kind of carry us forward. Is this is this where we are right now? I think so. I think so. I mean, I've, I've said, you know, when people, because I have spoken at quite a few like, schools and in Black History Month, and it's always what advice. And I say I'm not giving advice. One, when I was your age, I wouldn't have listened to a 70-year-old anyway. That's the first thing. And secondly, um, I've got to say that the means you have of communication, the issues you face are completely different to what I faced. But what I can say is there are some things which will started with Du Bois, with Black Reconstruction in America, 
in the late 18th century, that those threads run through right through to Martin Luther King, to the Panthers, to Malcolm X, right through to race today. Those strands, they're the ones you can learn from in terms of their approach and what they did and how they did it. That's what you can learn from. But I don't think you can replicate it because it's different. Just just to just to come back to your previous point, Layla, when you were talking about the unions and talking about the Labour Party, sort of tracing it from, yeah, the 80s to now, mm. like what you did in your description, I think it's really poignant and really important, particularly like for my generation. So I'm, I'm 28 and Tiso's in his 40s, but... Tiso's reconciled with that disappointment a little bit more than I had mm-hmm. so I'm sort of like last few years like oh my god Corbynism oh my god the Labour Party are saying they care they're being internationalists like all this mm-hmm. stuff yeah and then the levels of disappointment particularly in the last 12 yeah. months I just next level disappointment like yeah. tears like the emo- <laughs> like the, the disappointment I know. I know they reject us constantly they throw us under the bus when it comes down to it I just I hadn't ever I hadn't ever experienced that I definitely feel like we're recuperating and we're actually thinking, okay, what can we use those unions for? What can we use the Labour Party and all the structures that exist for that Mm -hmm. actually create something different and be on the periphery? Because when it comes down to it, they're going to disappoint us, like you say, like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the representation stuff. And also this point you made about middle classes running Mm -hmm. these movements. Yeah, yeah. One of the things, especially when that, I can't remember the the, uh, the name of the MP who came out and said about critical race theory not being a thing. Kemi, Kemi, yeah. So there is a significant black middle class that are moving in a different direction. Oh, there's 40. I didn't realise there were 40 black and Asian and minority ethnic MPs in the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. got a friend who I beat up every day because he's still in the Labour Party. But we'll definitely <laughs> we, we have, um, when he told me that, I said, well, there's 40 of them in there. He said, yes. And I said, well, what have they done? What, what have they said? Well, I, I was amazed. I thought there was like 12. But to know where there's that many and the silence is just deafening. There's just as many in the Conservative Party now yes, as well. Like, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is what shocks me. You've got a group of people who are, look like us, but mm-hmm. speaking in a totally different language, making Absolutely. totally different demands, making demands that match the state or the oppressive power. Yeah. Basically, they want to be part of it. Yeah, And that's why, I mean, I I had a lovely session with a a school a couple of weeks ago. And I said, you know, the thing that gets me is this whole thing about black on black violence. What what Mm. is black on black violence? There's no such thing. It's violence. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, but you'll get black people talking about black on black violence and talking about what's going on in black communities. But that's to do with poverty, deprivation and policing. That's got nothing to do with black people against black people. And I just think... Even the language we're using now, we're adopting, you know, what mainstream society is saying to us. And that was one thing that Race Today would never do. We would always turn on its head. If a statement like black on black violence would be made, we would have brought out an editorial which said there is no such thing as black on black violence. It's violence. And the reason this violence is going on is because of drugs in the black community. And we would have done an analysis. And that's what's disappointing that you don't see that now. I think Akal is the only one I've seen talking about the reality of gang warfare and that, you know, when there were more violent gangs in Glasgow than there are in the black community, the approach that was taken was quite different to the approach that's being taken now. And that's what I miss. I miss that critical thinking from the black community, which completely debunks what white society is saying about the black population. And that was where Race Today as a journal was good, because it never once ever accepted anything that was said. I mean, our statement on mugging, now it's black on black violence, but when I grew up, it was about mugging. And we made a wonderful statement, which we produced as a pamphlet and distributed, saying it isn't mugging, it's to do with the black wageless. And when people don't have a wage, this is what will happen. 
and the, what the society needs to do is, is think of why these people are wageless and why they're in this position. And that's that's what I miss about now. You don't get that kind of, you know, thing being around and talked about and an intervention, really, an intervention in a lot of the language and the, the things that are said about the black community. I miss that. That upsets me when I speak to other black people and they're, they're telling me stuff like that, black and black crime. And I'm thinking like, that doesn't even make sense. The word no, the, exactly. the sense doesn't make sense, but it's the belief that they have in it. And when I press them on it, they will justify it either through anecdotal evidence or worse, conspiracy. It becomes a point where I can't even argue. It's not a rational argument. Yeah. I know, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, I don't know what it's about, but these conspiracy theories, they are worrying when you, you see the amount of people that buy into them, aren't they? So that's, again, the absence of any real radical politics and thinking and debate and discourse and discussion. And I suppose that would take place on social media. But again, it's people are selective about what they select to read on social media, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was one thing with print journalism. Race Today was kind of the only paper which, in a national sense, talked about these black issues. So a lot of people mm-hmm. read it, black and white, people in institutions, people who are opposed to it read it because they wanted to know. That isn't the case now. Leila, I think, where can we find hope right now, do you think? Well, there's hope in the fact that you've got mass movements. And to me, the the hope of Black Lives Matter is probably one which a lot of people don't think about. When we were demonstrating in the 70s, uh, 60s, 70s and early 80s, the only people who, white people who supported us were people from left-wing organisations. The change with Black Lives Matter is the mass of young white people who have joined these in these demonstrations, who are saying that they don't want any part of racism either. That That's a new phenomenon. That that wasn't around when I was around, I can tell you. We, we had to fight the white population as much as, we, you know, the state to get ourselves heard and to, to get support. But now you have masses of young people, white people who are saying, we're, we're fed up with this colonial representation of black people, this racist concept of black people as well, and we don't want it either. And the movement has gone to nearly every country in the world. I mean, there's been a Black Lives Matter movement in in India where, you know, the untouchables and those on the lower ground are are saying. So when you have a movement like that, you have got to be optimistic. You have got to be hopeful. Because five years ago, people would have told you, you know, there's no movement, nobody really cares. Everyone just wants individual progression. You've got to try and make it in society. What's important is your own personal space and personally what you do. And then you see a huge movement that says no. These issues are social questions. They're mass questions. And only we in a mass way can do anything about it. So that has to give you great optimism. What happens after a movement, and I was part of the Black Power movement, is a group of individuals or groups of individuals, activists will go away and they'll develop on the arguments and think of new ways of organising and thinking and creating for the future. That's what will happen. So when people say, oh, well, what is the, you know, people say, no, but it's finished. Nonsense. What it stirs up, uh, there will always be individuals who will go forward now and have confidence to address issues, which before the movement, they didn't have the confidence to do. Because their confidence will come from the fact that thousands and thousands of people think like them. And when that happens, that changes how you think and how you operate. That was incredible, Leila. Thank you so, so much. I'm I'm so glad we've got to end. You're an absolute legend. If you don't know Leila already, you need to get to know in the episode notes. We'll be back again next week. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It was great to meet you both. And thank you for such a stimulating discussion. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 